of today's sermon is Repeal and Replace. It's taken from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Father, we would ask now as we come together as the body of Christ at Lacey Chapel that you would guide us into all truth. May the Spirit of God be our teacher as we look at the power of the word revealed through Matthew. Teach us, we would ask this morning in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, we watched the Republican Congress implode. They did so by reneging on the promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare. It amazes me that after seven years of complaining and griping, they couldn't get her done. While the Republicans, when the Republicans didn't control the presidency but held the Congress, they passed the bill 60 times to repeal and replace. Of course, knowing Obama would veto it. But now, but now that they have control over the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they will not repeal this myth of so-called health care for all and then replace it with one based upon reality. That being said, this morning I ask you to repeal your mythical understanding of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let us replace it with one that's based on the reality of Scripture. We've all had this myth built up in our minds about his birth in Bethlehem. You know, the myth of the crash, the stable, the cute little farm animals, mangers, and of course, the three wise men. Well, this morning, I'd like to walk you through the record of this event as penned by Matthew. He is the only gospel writer to include these events. He will contrast the attitude of the Magi with, who were, by the way, Gentiles, with the Jews who knew the scriptures and yet literally would not walk five miles to find out if it was true. This myth has been developed in our culture by, unfortunately, TV and movies And fortunately, I have to say, not only has popular culture done this to you, but even your church. You know, the inclusion of the evergreen trees, the beautiful ornaments, Santa Claus and the elves, and of course, we three kings from Orient are. Somehow, the biblical account of the Magi's visit to see Jesus got hijacked and turned on its head. First of all, let me say this. They were not kings, nor were there three of them, and they were not from the Orient. There is no evidence inside or outside of the scriptures that these men were kings. There's no evidence that they came from the Orient. The number three was simply hypothesized from the number of gifts for Hallmark cards. You see, you can only get three people on a front of a Hallmark card. Truth be told, most folks, and that would include you, get their knowledge about Christmas from Christmas cards and Christmas pageants held at churches. Many are now determining their doctrine, their belief about the Bible from a stupid movie and book called The Shack which is heretical. Why do people do that? Because it's so much easier to watch a 90-minute movie than to read the Bible and study it. So let me ask you this morning, are you ready to repeal and replace the myth that you've bought into your whole lives with the truth? If so, then turn to the book of Matthew with me, chapter 2 and verse 1. Here we find the event that changed the world, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you need to use the Pew Bible, which is found in front of you in the rack, you can find this text on page 957. I begin with verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. 
Notice that the verse begins with the conjunction now. It functions as a logative connective to the preceding chapter. This indicates the timing of the event. Matthew proceeds from the second trimester of Mary's pregnancy, skips over the last few months of her preparation, right past the event itself, and you'll notice at the end of chapter 1, that he simply says that she gave birth to a son, and skips right to this visit. Now the players in this event who will change the course of human history, are given to us. There are three significant, important important players in our text. Each has a huge impact on the event itself. The first is actually not a person, but a place. That is where all the action happens. The first player in our little drama is the small village of Bethlehem. The total population of this little hamlet probably did not exceed any more than three to 500 people. It lay five miles as the crow flies south and west of the big city of Jerusalem. Are you going to cooperate today? You can see, this is, uh, I can't even read it, Daniel. Here it is, Bethlehem, right there. And here's Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, Mediterranean. Bethlehem is right there to the south and west of Jerusalem. It was gotten to, if you will, from Jerusalem by climbing a steep 2,400-foot rise up to the top of a cliff, and then you could look down into a valley in which the city or village of Bethlehem laid in the midst of a large, fertile valley a place that was perfect for growing grain. Hence, it got the name Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Hebrew. It was an obscure village, to be honest, and it was overshadowed by its bigger sister, the city of Jerusalem. Yet, it was always known in Jewish history as being the place of King David's birth. It was the city from which Mary and Joseph both ancestrally came from. Luke tells us that they were forced to travel back to Bethlehem, their ancestral home, when a census was ordered by the Roman government, by Quirinius, uh, as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. Notice that Matthew identifies Bethlehem further in our text, saying it is part of the land of Judea. That's a tribal designation. He does this to separate it from another Bethlehem. There was another Bethlehem in the land of Zebulon, which is just south of the Sea of Galilee. So Bethlehem is mentioned here in the Gospel of Matthew and in another reference in a Gospel, but nowhere else outside of the birth of Jesus. Now history tells us that in 325, um, Helena... That's A.D., the mother of the Roman Empire Constantine, who had been converted to Christianity by the influence of his mom. And Constantine allowed his mother to travel to the Holy Land, and he sent her with thousands of troops, hundreds of engineers and builders. Helena searched out the holy sites that are associated with, who is that woman? associated with the birth of Jesus and his life, and she proceeded with the help of her engineers and troops and builders to build churches on top of every one of those sites. The Church of the Nativity sits atop a cave that was historically said by the locals to be the birthplace of Jesus. In the 6th century, Emperor Justin I had the original structure built by Helena torn down and a new and enlarged church was built on the same site. This is the building now that we see in the background in this picture of the church of the nativity. Notice how big the entrance is. You must stoop down, that was intentional by the builders, in worship to enter into the presence of the baby's birth, supposedly. Now, there are no remains from the church built by Helena in the 3rd century. Before the birth of Jesus, Bethlehem had a long and a rich history going back 4,000 years to the time of Jacob, who buried Rachel there. 
It was also the place that Ruth the Moabitess lived with her husband Boaz. More to the point, Bethlehem was the home of Jesse, the Bethlehemite shepherd, from whom King David came. After the kingdom split into the north and south, Rehoboam, the king of Judah, fortified the town of Bethlehem against attack. So in the minds of all Jewish people, Bethlehem is identified richly as a place called the city of David, the city of his birth, which was later transferred that title to the city of Jerusalem. One of the earliest church fathers, Justin Martyr, hailed from around the city of Bethlehem. It is well known that many of the homes in early Bethlehem were built in caves, and that was what Jerome wrote, or Justin wrote, wrote in 150 AD, that the cave was still there in which Jesus had been birthed. So it was common uh, knowledge of his birth, and it was common for ancient peoples to have homes in caves or to at least allow their livestock to find shelter in these caves. It could well be that a cave was the place of Jesus' birth, but I rather doubt it. Now, the Church of the Nativity is built over that cave. Now, the second key player in this event is a man called Herod the Great. He started what became known as the Herodian dynasty. His family, the Herodians, would rule over Israel for almost 150 years. The family members of the Herodian dynasty were appointed by Rome, the emperor in Rome, to rule over Israel or its regions. Herod the Great was not born then as the king of the Jews, but he was a political player, and he was born in 74 BC, and he lived till March or April of 4 BC. He died shortly after the birth of the Lord Jesus. Herod is known as Herod the Great because of the things that he did. He built huge buildings and gathered great wealth to himself. He would build these large edifices and then he would name them after emperors of Rome to endear himself to them. Herod spent, for example, 39 years building the temple on the Temple Mount, the one that Jesus attended. And it was spectacular in person to behold. Other great buildings that Herod the Great built were the Herodium, the city of Caesarea, and of course Masada. All of these other buildings, the Herodium, Caesarea, and Masada, were palaces that he would go and rest in from his tremendous activities as the king of Israel. Herod the Great had ten wives and numerous descendants. He was a descendant of Esau and came from Edom, which is outside of Israel. The Edomites, as you might remember, were the traditional enemies of Israel, but Herod converted to Judaism uh, at a young age. Uh, It's said that he did so for political purposes. Now, the Jews would never accept an Edomite, a half-breed, half-Gentile, half-Jew, as their legitimate king. So this caused Herod the Great to be suspicious of others, thinking they were trying to usurp his throne. The result was that he had one wife and three of his sons and a multitude of other peoples executed. There is a story told about Herod. It's not sure if it's true or not. But that as his death approached, he had hundreds of Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and others, gathered and rounded up and brought to Caesarea and held at the Hippodome by his guards. He ordered that upon his death that these Jews all be executed. Why? Well, he knew that no one would grieve his passing because he was so hated. So he wanted to have the Jews have a reason to grieve. Well, the executions, if this was true, were not carried out according to the tradition. So, upon hearing of the Magi's visits to Jerusalem, we know that Herod was gravely ill. Yet, with his personality being a narcissistic and paranoid, he was still zealous to hold on to that which he believed was his. 
uh, the kingship of Israel. And now he was being threatened by a new king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem. Obviously, uh, this is so because he has all the toddlers two years of age and under in Bethlehem killed. Obviously, none of those toddlers could have ever been a threat to his throne, uh, especially since he was on the verge of death himself. But this act of committing serial killings tells us a lot about the character of the man Herod. Well, Herod, as I said, died in 4 BC. And we know this for fact because of the writings of Josephus. And in Luke 2, where we read of the birth of the Lord Jesus and the census that is ordered, we know that that took place around 4 BC as well. That means Jesus was born around 4 BC rather than what we know from our calendars, um, starting with zero and him being born around 1 AD. Following Herod's death, Rome ordered his kingdom divided amongst his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Now the third player in our little drama here in Matthew chapter 2 are the Magi, or as some people call them, the wise men. Who were these wise men? Who were these Magi? It believes that they emanated from the priestly caste of the Persians and the Babylonians. If this is so, then these men were experts in the observation of the heavenly bodies and their movements. The Persian term that's used here, Magio, speaks of those who were scholars, advisors, magicians, who counseled the kings of Babylon and Medio Persia. However, their specific identity has never been possible to determine. So that means we don't really know who they are, but this has not stopped many people from making educated guesses. I think it's best that we understand them as being Gentiles from the region that we now call Iran, which was once Persia. These men would look to the heavenlies, they would see the movements of the planets and the stars and the moon, and then they would make predictions based on those movements, much like we might think of horoscopes today. Now the text says that they men that these men came from the east, which in Hebrew literally states from the I'm sorry, Greek literally states from the rising of the sun. So they came from Persia, modern-day Iran, which is uh, east of Jerusalem, and they traveled what would end up being about a thousand miles on camelback to visit the child. Have you ever ridden a camel? I have. It ain't no fun, and I didn't ride a thousand miles. It was a horrible experience. I don't suggest it. If anybody gives you an opportunity to, take a pass on it. They rode camels for a thousand miles to come and visit the baby Jesus. A royal birth that happened in in Judea. How did they know this? Well, supposedly, a lot of people think a star showed them this and guided them there. As I said, tradition tells us that there were three in number, based on the number of gifts given. But that's quite unlikely. To travel a thousand miles from Iran to Judea would have been very problematic. First, they'd be vulnerable to the attack of bandits. Three guys on camels could be easily taken. Secondly, there were no servants with them to do all the manual labor, to put up the tents, to take care of the camels, to fix the food. Lastly, three guys riding into Jerusalem would have been no big deal. But if a caravan of two to three hundred armed men rode into Jerusalem, it would cause a great stir in the city. Now, the Magi coming from the east of the rising sun logically would have had to have traveled west, south and west. If the star was in the west and they followed it, then there'd be a big problem. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. The question the Magi asked when they arrived in Jerusalem, though, caused a huge stir. Notice in verse 2, when they got there, they asked the folks, where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Apparently, the star stopped at some point that they were following. They lost sight of it. Something happened. So they did the logical thing that would come to mind when looking for the king of the Jews. They went to the royal city of Jerusalem. They expected to find the baby there. But they were in for a big surprise. What they found was that people were totally ignorant that any birth had taken place. More more amazing was that when they uh, questioned the religious authorities, the Jewish priesthood, and the civil ruler, what they found was hostility. No one had seen his star. And that was surprising to them. Now, it's well known in ancient times that people believed in the movements of planets, stars, moon, asteroids, and all that stuff. Uh, These phenomena affecting the birth, especially of, of rulers, of kings. Even Nancy Reagan believed in the movement of stars affecting her husband, Ronnie. Now, some explain the star as being the heavenly conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. Others say that it was an asteroid, that it must be something um, in the skies that they followed. But as you can tell, if the Magi were from Persia, Iran, right here, they would be moving west to go to Jerusalem. They would have come from the east and gone west. The problem with that is it defies naturalistic or scientific evidence that the heavenly bodies move the opposite direction. Now, many people seek a scientific or some kind of a uh, common sense answer for what this star is. But in doing so, they discount this movement of this so-called star or light. I would compare the star moving from Persia to, to Israel, to modern-day modern Israel, uh, to the magic bullet in Dallas, Texas, you know, that had to zig and to zag in order to hit the president and the governor in the motorcade. It's just impossible for the, mo- for the normal flow of stars and all other heavenly objects is from west to east. It travels in that way. Uh, the, star, the star would have to, if they traveled in that way, the star would have to move in some kind of a direction that was unknown to most heavenly phenomenon. So, therefore, I do not believe it was any kind of a natural phenomenon. It was not a star, but a light that was put into the skies by God. We have no record in the Bible or outside the Bible of anyone seeing such a spectacular heavenly occurrence at this time. No one said that they saw such a light in the sky. And in fact, in Luke's account, in fact, in Luke's account, very important, the shepherds in the field didn't see the star, but angels told them to go see the baby Jesus. So the trouble begins when King Herod hears about this king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem. We read in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, from the Magi, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Matthew now gives this editorial comment telling us that once this caravan of uh, wise men, Magi, arrived into Jerusalem, as I said, probably with an entourage of two or three hundred men, they asked these questions, and someone goes to Herod, and tells him, and alarms went off in his head. Who is this competitor now to my throne? And notice that the people of the city of Jerusalem were troubled as well. They knew anything that troubled Herod would trouble them. So, being a descendant of Esau, an Edomite by birth, a half-breed, and a public governor, a puppet governor of Judea, Herod believed himself to be in trouble. His kingship rested on his keeping the people in Israel somewhat settled. And if there was a new king arise in the town, then there would be trouble with the Roman government. 
And so they, uh, so, and so Herod decided he was going to do something about it, as we shall see in this text. Now, the residents of Jerusalem knew that Herod was a bit crazy. They knew he was capable of doing terrible things, and this frightened them. So, Herod interviews the Magi, as we read in verse 4. He gathered them together, all the, all, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Before he interviews the Magi, he calls in his experts. He calls in his kitchen cabinet, if you will, for advice. He himself does not know the Bible, but he has professional lawyers on his payroll that does. He's had these men on retainer for just an incident like this. So he calls in his Jewish lawyers, the scribes, and he asks them what the Magi are talking about. They knew the ins and outs of the scriptures. They knew where the Messiah would be born. So it's noteworthy in this text to notice that Herod himself makes the connection between the birth of the king of the Jews and the Messiah in the very next verse. This messianic hope was still alive in the people's heart of the anointed one of the Lord coming. So he calls in the Sanhedrin, that's who this would be, and he inquires of them as to the birthplace of the expected Messiah. Now in the Greek... The word inquire is written in the Greek imperfect tense, which means he kept asking them over and over again, which shows us his agitation and his worry. Note that they did not go to look this up in any scrolls at the temple. They didn't have to do any research. They didn't have to study to find the answer. In fact, they knew it cold. They knew the answer to the question right off the top of, the he- of their heads. They, in fact, had part of it memorized. They could quote to him the scripture where, was, where the answer was found. They answered in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Right off the top of their head. But the problem is, this is all academic rather than personal. Here's your answer, O king. The answer is the prophet of of ancient days told us that he would be born in the land of Judea, Bethlehem. This was written 750 years before the actual birth of Christ. We find it in Micah 5.2. And as I said, they don't quote it exactly. In fact, they, they, they mix it with 2 Samuel 5. 5 2 as well. They tell Herod the exact place that the king is to be born and that they uh, and that he will be a shepherd king. That will be his role. Now, Micah ministered, as I said, 750 years before this event. That was about a hundred years before Daniel and his uh, uh, other fellow Jews were taken into exile into Babylon. So we see here that he is to be born in Bethlehem, the land of Judea. But if you read the original prophecy, it does not say Bethlehem, the land of Judea. They kind of change this prophecy a little bit. Uh, You might say they might paraphrase it into more modern vernacular for Herod to read. As I mentioned earlier, he was... He was to be born in Bethlehem, not in Zebulon, but in Judea. But in the original text of Micah, it's called Bethlehem Ephratah, Ephratah, which is different than Bethlehem, the land of Judea. The land of Judea was the tribal designation, and Ephratah was more of a localized, specific location, sort of like a county of a state. And in verse 6, we read this loose Quotation given by the scribes to Herod, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judea, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, they paraphrase Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, mixing them together. And this is surprising when you think about it, since these guys were experts in the law. You'd expect that they'd get it right. You'd also expect that once understanding that this king of the Jews had been born, that they'd want to go there and see for themselves. More on that in a minute. But they didn't. They didn't go. 
This reminds me how, of how lightly Christians take the prophecies that we find in scriptures. We often talk about the Lord Jesus returning a second time, don't we? We'll amen it in church, won't we? Oh, it's a wonderful prophecy. The Lord Jesus is going to return for the church and we're all going to go to heaven and be with him and happy ever after. But how many people actually live in light of that prophecy? How many people actually make, and make choices based on that truth? We tend to leave this place and forget those things, don't we, and live any way that we want. This is exactly how the scribes, the lawyers, the chief priests were living. They knew the exact place that he was going to be born. They heard it happen, and would they walk, ride, catch a train five miles to go to Bethlehem to see it for themselves? And the answer to that is no. Because it's all theoretical, academic, rather than something that changed their lives. If the trumpet were sound to sound today and the Lord was to call you into the air to meet him, would you say, oh Lord, could we wait five years? I want to see my grandchildren grow up and get married? I bet a lot of you would. The amazing thing here is that Matthew adeptly answers the unbelief of the king by quoting by having the authorities of Israel quote the exact scripture from Micah. So when his Jewish readers read this, they have to see the hypocrisy of the chief priests and the scribes. Well, Herod got his answer to where and when. What would he do? Well, first thing he does is he dismisses his Jewish lawyers, and then he summons the Magi back to his court. He meets with them, according to verse 7, in private. Why? Because he had a terrible idea in the back of his mind when he calls them in for his meeting. What does he do with the Magi? He pumps them for information. Look with me there, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from that, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Come to my royal chambers. Let me talk to you. And then he interrogates them. Now, some would see this as a non-threatening event, but in fact, Herod has a dastardly thought as he tries to determine the exact timing when they first saw the star. If he could figure out when the star first appeared, he could figure out how old the child would be, which would, lay, which would then uh, determine his course of action later on, as we shall see. So he asked them, when did you first see the star? Trying to entrap them. Well, the truth is, to go a thousand miles by camel in a caravan would probably take anywhere between one year and two years to travel that far. So we know that this time was at least a year, maybe two years possibly, after the birth of the Lord Jesus. So Herod tries to establish this time frame. Look at verse 8. But he sent them unto Bethlehem. He dismissed them. Go and search carefully for the, now stop there, circle it, the word child. Remember last week I asked you to pay attention in chapter 1 where it used the word child three times and I told you in the Greek it's not there? That's simply supplied to you in your English translations to help you think about it in your mind more clearly. It's not there. What it actually talks about is in the womb of the mother. But now here the word child does appear. The word is padion, P-A-I-D-O-N. That means child in Greek. It speaks of a, a boy or a girl between the ages of 18 months and three years old. A toddler, we would call them. Now, Matthew could have used a different word here. He could have used the Greek word brepos, B-R-E-P-H-O-S, which means baby. And in fact, Luke uses that word in his chapter when speaking of the baby in the manger. Literally, Matthew is speaking of a toddler and not 
a baby? What does that do to your image, the myth that you have of the Magi coming to visit the newborn in Bethlehem? So I think it's quite reasonable to say that the baby Jesus was no longer a baby, but was now a toddler between 18 months and two years of age when the Magi arrived. And, he, and Herod said to them, go find this Padean, this child, and then come back to me that I might go and worship him. That was a lie. It was a cover story for what he actually wanted to do. And in verse 9 it says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, the star now reappears... It stopped, apparently, right? It's waited for them in Jerusalem, right? The one that they had seen in the east, and it went on before them, it starts to move again, until it came and stood over the place where the child Jesus was. The Magi and their entourage head out of the city of David. They go up to 2,400 feet as they follow this light in the sky that got his place there, and it brings them to the child Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, if you've ever been to church here at night, it's pretty dark. Anybody ever been to church here at night? No lights on? Pretty dark, yeah. If you wanted to go from here to Cabela's in the dark, I would say to you, it's about five or six miles that away, I think. Okay? How would you get there? Would you ever in your heart or mind, look up to the sky and say, I'm going to follow a star to make my way to Cabela's. You would never do that, would you? Now, if you were in a boat on the ocean and you wanted to get from Africa to uh, the United States or to, to Europe, you might look at a star, right? And follow a star to get you there. But see, the problem was with navigating in, in small distances, the stars do you no good. They're too high above to actually help you navigate specific turns and places to go here on earth. The light has to be no less than a mile high for it to be of value to you. So I'm suggesting to you that there was never any star in the sky. No one ever reported it. No one ever saw it outside of the Magi. What it was was a light that was hung in the sky by God for them to follow. And it was close enough to earth that it actually led them. Now, do we have biblical basis for this? Yeah, we do, don't we? We do. Mark thinks so. I think so. When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, for 40 years, what did they follow? A light in the sky, right? A pillar of flame. A cloud of smoke at night, and it led them. God can do that. So I believe he's placed a supernatural light rather than used a natural phenomenon to guide them. This was an accurate GPS system for them. It was close enough for them to see and to turn to go over that ridge and make it down to the exact place where God was guiding them. I would compare this to the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory that hung over the tent of meeting in the, in the Old Testament. So, for a lack of a better term, the writer calls it a star. Anything the ancients saw that was bright in the sky, they would call a star. Now, this supernatural light was so accurate, led them to the exact house. Notice that. It's not a cave. Look with me at verse 10. It says, When they saw the star, they exceedingly rejoiced with great joy. Isn't that interesting? That was their response to the Lord's leading. We'll get to the star in just a moment. Isn't that interesting when you compare it to the response of the high priests and the scribes? They weren't filled with joy. Here it says, they saw the star and they rejoiced. The Shekinah light of glory, I believe, caused them to rejoice. Gentiles, they rejoiced because the light has now reappeared to them and shows them the exact place to go. They follow it and it leads them directly to the house in verse 11. And after coming into the house... It's an accurate translation of the word. It's not a cave. And they saw the 
Padean, the child, 18 months to three years of age, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, notice it's a child and not a brepos, a baby. Looking at the slide behind me, you can see the typical Israelite house. It was a four-room house. This is usually the the bedrooms. Then one of these would function as a... a, uh, center area where the animals would stay, and there would be a kitchen and a work area. You can see it over here. It's a little bit of a different configuration. Here's an actual four-room house, one that we will see when we go there. Where are you? Kayla? Okay, we'll see this when we're there. Okay? Four rooms. House. They didn't go to a cave. They went to a house. And in one of those rooms, the animals were kept. Now, this is where all the Christmas cards and all the dumb Christmas pageants and the, and the ill-conceived sermons lead the church in the wrong direction. Instead of informing you accurately, the church has done a disservice by appealing to your emotions rather than truth. The Magi found a child, not a baby, in a house and not a cave. As I said, this would be like the four-room house that you see behind me on the screen. Each of, these ho- each of these rooms in the house had a specific purpose. When they got there, all the other rooms were filled with people. All of the relatives from all over Israel descended on Beth- Bethlehem, and they needed a place to stay. Well, you can, you can sleep in the kitchen. You can sleep in the bedroom with us. You can sleep in the workroom. Oh, Mary and Joseph, we're all out of room. You can sleep with the animals. Think about it. At that time, they had goats, sheep, chickens, whatever. They couldn't leave them out at night. What would they do? They'd run off. Or they'd get eaten by a prey. So they brought them into that room in the house underneath the roof, and they would stay. So you see how different the picture is than the myth that we've had built up about the cute little stable, right? The crash scene in it and the animals all around. Some similarities, but not really. They were in a dark, dingy, closed-in room with a ceiling about 20 feet high with a one window at the top to let the smoke from the fire out. Really kind of an unpleasant. And you'll see one of those, Kayla, when we're there as well. But the Magi arrive to the specific house, led them there by the light that God placed in the sky, and they find a child, 18 months to 2 years of age. Notice next, please notice in this verse, there is no mention of Joseph. Where's Joseph? They come into the house, and where do they instantly go? The child. They fall on their feet before the child, and they worship him. That is a faux pas in this culture. Children were meaningless. Servants were meaningless. The person of importance was the homeowner, the man. Oh, Lord, why have things changed so much? (laughs) The man was what counted. And they go to this child, and they fall down and worship him, Notice, they did not fall down and worship Mary. They didn't worship the absent Joseph. What does your myths teach you from the pageants and the Christmas cards? You see how wrong they've gotten it? After this immediate response of coming into the room and seeing the child, they instantly Focus on him, a child with no rights, and worship him. They don't greet the mother, according to the text. They worship the child. Now, some sects of Christianity, unfortunately, exalt Mary. They say that she was sinless and that she was a perpetual virgin. That, my dear ones, is just nonsense made up by man. They Fall in worship of the child. Can you even imagine this today? Someone showing up at the hospital at St. Peter's and falling in worship 
of a baby and offering them frankincense, gold, and myrrh? Well, that's where the Christmas cards get the three number from. And kings, which looks much better on a Christmas card than just a regular old traveler from the road. So, I believe that there was probably many more. Maybe six. Maybe ten. Maybe twenty of these magi. These men who came to bring him gifts at his royal home. So, there's been a lot of speculation about these gifts. Many sermons have been made where they match the gift with some kind of person, uh, personal characteristics of the Lord Jesus. And maybe there's some truth to it. We just don't know because it's not in the text. But we have three gifts given in worship. We know that these gifts would have been given to kings or to someone of importance. They were royal gifts, if you will. And in some ways, they do reflect the character of the child. The gold suggests, may clearly say this is just a suggestion. The gold suggests royalty and deity. The frankincense, which was a perfume that was used in the temple worship, represents his righteous life and sinless perfection. And the myrrh, which was a bitter herb that was used in the preparation of bodies for burial, represents his future life of suffering and dying. These costly gifts, very costly, were brought by the Magi. They were luxury items, and they were given to him as a royal figure. It was a royal child they were coming to attend. What I found very surprising was when I looked up this text and began examining similar-like texts, there is a text which speaks of his second coming in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6. Second coming. And it says this, And they will bring gold and frankincense, and they will bear good news and praises of the Lord. Notice what's missing. The gift that's missing at his second coming is myrrh. It won't be necessary any longer because he's not going to die. You won't need this bitter herb. So the gold speaks of his majesty, the frankincense of his righteous fragrant life in the myrrh of his suffering and death. Now verse 12 cleans up this event for us so that we can move on to the next. The magi are directed by the Lord, according to this verse, uh, not this time by the supernatural light, but by a dream, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. Now, The Magi might have assumed that Herod was sincere in his wanting to come and actually worship the the child. You and I know that's silly. He didn't. He wanted to kill a child. But in this dream, the Lord makes it clear to them that they are not to return to, to him because of his nefarious desires. So the Lord gives them a dream just as he has given Joseph and Mary dreams about the birth of the Lord Jesus, and he warns them to go home another way. Now, there's, two poss- there's a number of possibilities. They could have gone west underneath the Dead Sea and then north and then back home, or they could have gone the other way and gone up the international highway and then crossed over through Syria and back down. Whatever, they left by a different way, and they went home. So what does this miraculous event to you and me mean? How is this relevant to our life? Well, we must bear in mind that Matthew was writing his Jewish brethren. He he was writing them. His desire was to show them important truths about the birth of Jesus Christ. First, he was the Messiah and that he had a worldwide impact. Gentiles from a thousand miles away came to visit him as a child. So, it was impacting the Gentile community and, was, and should impact the Jewish community. It should drive them out of their comfort zone to see that others recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Secondly, the birth of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that they revered, that they knew, that they memorized, and that their own religious leaders couldn't be bothered to figure out and see if it was actually true. Therefore, they personally should trust him. Finally, 
they should note the response of their own religious leaders. Should they respond with indifference or should they embrace the baby toddler Lord Jesus? Should they follow their religious elites or should they make their own minds up about Jesus? Well, I think the reactions of people in this text are threefold. And there's still the same reactions people have today to Jesus. The first reaction was demonstrated by Herod when he was hostile. He wanted to actually kill Jesus, as we will see next week. Herod was afraid that this newborn baby, the king of the Jews, would interfere with his life. That it might displace him. That he might lose his power and influence. Isn't that what people think today? That Jesus is somehow going to disrupt their life and call them to be missionaries in Africa. The second reaction is typified by the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests and scribes. They reacted with complete indifference. I've witnessed to a whole lot of religious people before, even Jews, and most of them react with indifference. Eh, That's your opinion. That's your thinking. Tell them that Jesus fulfills prophecies of their own book and they're not even interested. Turn to Isaiah 53. I've never heard of it. It didn't make the slightest difference to them. They wouldn't even walk five miles to find out if it was true or not. Finally, the third reaction, that of the Magi. Gentiles who came and worshipped him and broke out with great rejoicing when they saw Jesus. It amazed Matthew that as he wrote his Jewish brethren that they had not received Christ with all of the things that he did in Israel, the witness that he had, the miracles that he did, and that it would take Gentiles, the even Gentiles, to come and worship the baby. Truth is, not much has changed today, has it? We see these three reactions to Christ. Let me ask you this. What is your reaction to the child Jesus? Is it indifference? Or is it worship? Do you bow down and worship him and rejoice? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for this passage, which indeed clarifies in our mind what really happened at Bethlehem on that, on that day when the Magi visited. Help us, Father, to think clearly and biblically. Help us, Father, to rejoice and to worship, we would ask. In Jesus' name, amen.